Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome to episode 52 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. Today is a very special episode because it's our first birthday. I cannot believe that for the last 52 weeks, we have produced and published a new heartfelt conversation every single week for the last 12 months. When I first thought of the idea of the School of Wellbeing podcast, I committed to 10 episodes. And after completing the first 10 episodes, I was completely hooked. I loved being able to share heartfelt conversations and seeing the positive ripple effect it's having in schools, homes, and the wider community. Every episode takes so much effort from contacting the guests, from reading the books, from listening to other podcasts they were on, to having the conversation, to editing the conversation and creating all the social media that goes around every episode. And it is worth the effort. It's worth the effort when I receive a message from someone that says, Meg, I've been listening to your podcast and now I'm doing this. Now I'm taking courageous action or I have been in such a difficult situation. There's so much struggle in my life and listening to your podcast has given me hope, has provided me with skills, provided me with strategies to work through this tough situation that I'm currently facing. And this is why I do it. My deepest hope is that every conversation inspires you to take deliberate and courageous action in your life. I honestly believe that with so much going on in the world, the only way to thrive is by design, by taking deliberate, consistent, courageous action to swim against the tide. Because if we go with the tide, if we take our well-being by default, we're going to be exhausted, resentful, scrolling mindlessly on the couch, and this is not the way of the future. We need to be well we need to have courage. We need to move through the discomfort and know that it is worth the effort. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for being a part of this incredible adventure. And I cannot wait to share another 52 episodes with you in the next 12 months. Working in schools requires a high level of physical and emotional energy. And I am thrilled to announce that I have created the five-day energy reset for educators and school leaders that want to learn how to boost their energy and take more inspired action in their lives, that want to move from the default way of being to a design way of thriving. Over five days, I will be sharing five game-changing strategies that I use to keep me feeling energized and excited about the future. To learn more, visit openmindeducation.com forward slash energy reset. Now let's get on with today's show. In this episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with Peter Stitchef. Peter is a consultant and coach that helps individuals and organizations create values-driven change. In her moving memoir, My Beautiful Mess, Living Through Burnout and Rediscovering Me, Peter bravely shares her lived experience of burnout and the valuable lessons she learned about herself and life along the way. In this conversation, we discuss the pressure we feel to make an unworkable situation work, why separating who you are and what you do is so important, how creating a shared language to discuss difficult emotions and experiences is so vital, and so much more. 
I hope you enjoy my conversation with Peter Stichef. Peter, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks, Meg. Thanks heaps for having me. Today we're going to be talking about your beautiful book, My Beautiful Mess, Living Through Burnout and Rediscovering Me. And I'm curious to know, what gives you the courage to share your lived experience with others? Uh, It's an interesting question. To be honest with you, when the project My Beautiful Mess first started, it didn't start as a book. It started as a way of making sense of a chapter of my life and at the same time discovering a real passion for writing. And with that, what came so naturally um, with writing was writing about memories. And I hired myself a writing coach um, because I really felt as though writing was something I was passionate about. I wanted to do more. I wanted to improve. And with my writing coach, I started working on writing these memories. And as we put these memories together, there was the revelation by her first prior to me that, you know, you've got a book in this. And I could see that and I could see that was the way it was weaving together and it just so happened we then had the circumstance of lockdown and I had time on my hands and it became a project and a project which I just felt really inclined. I just really wanted to get it out there. I really believe that, you know, there are different ways of learning and we can learn through academia and facts and figures, but I think more importantly, for me anyway, I really learn through other people's stories and the stories that they tell. I need to connect with what I'm hearing um, and relate to it. And I just don't feel like there's enough of that out there, particularly at the moment. Yes, I think so many of us are yearning for real stories that we can hang on to that symbolize our own life or we can resonate with the pages. And when you sent me your book, I had a lot of books that I had to read at that time. And I thought, oh, I'll just read the first chapter. I won't read the whole thing because I've got so many books that I've got to read. And once I started, it was like one of those shows that you just can't stop. I'm like, just one more chapter. Oh, no, no, just one more. And then I'm bawling. I'm absolutely bawling. And my husband walks in like, what's going on? I'm like, oh, this book, like, I just can't stop. Like, wow, it's so real and so powerful. So straight away, I'm like, oh, I've got to talk to Peter because this is what we want to hear. We want to hear real stories, lived experience how do we get through this messy, beautiful life? So can you take us back to the years leading up to your burnout? Where were you working? What were you doing? What did your everyday life look like? Yeah, sure. Um, My professional and personal life, I worked in a really interesting industry, which unless that you've been in it yourself, I've since learned a lot of the world doesn't really know about it, is the medical device industry. And I sold spinal prosthesis and computer-assisted navigation to 20 of Melbourne's spinal surgeons. I worked when they worked in the operating room. So, for example, they would call me and say, I have a spinal surgery that needs to be done. These are the details of the surgery. And it was up to me to provide the kit, the prosthesis, if you like, or the prosthetic solution for them. Um, in terms of implants that they would use in the surgery. Uh, The role itself, we're a little bit like a walking and talking instruction manual. So I worked when they worked. Most of my time was spent in the operating room. And as I'm sure you can imagine, patients don't present between the hours of nine and five. (laughs) So um, whilst there is some elective surgery, a majority is elective surgery that you do, There is also trauma surgery um, and tumor surgery and other different types of surgery, which are time critical. 
and can present at all hours. So for 13 years, I was on call 24-7, working with a clinical team, um, would take calls any times, day or night, in terms of um, surgery bookings, or sometimes it was a conversation with a customer who happened to be on his way home from a ward round at nine o'clock at night, or on his way in at six o'clock in the morning. Um, you were always on, is the best way of putting it. So it sounds like your phone would have been attached to you at all times, just in that anticipation that someone may need something somewhere. Absolutely. It's like being in a state of hyper alertness all the time and expecting that the phone is going to ring, expecting the phone is going to message. And what I didn't realize at the time was I was setting myself up to constantly react to every call and every message that came through. And not every one of those was urgent but it was just the cycle that I became used to working within. The job itself, yes, it was very demanding in the day-to-day. The other part of the role was educating um, spinal surgeons in new techniques involving technology. They learned through us, through industry there. So there was quite a bit of travel involved overseas. Um, so when you're travelling overseas three or four times a year for three days, coming back, getting thrown back into that sort of um work cycle, if you like, as well as having a young family. I had a child in the middle of that career. It was a tough juggle. (laughs) I actually can't imagine it because my mind's going to, I don't know how I would go trying to communicate with surgeons all the time and feeling that level of responsibility for the information that you're sharing. You're not talking about directions to get to the coffee shop. You're talking about directions in surgery. That level of responsibility sounds quite intense. Yeah, it was. And that's that's a great way of putting it. It, It's a high performance environment is what it is. Um, The objective always is minimize risk. They don't want surprises. It's, It's your role to not only keep up with the surgeon in terms of the pace within which they're working, it's to be ahead of them and anticipate what's going to come next. Um, You're a part of their team. And the idea of If you can keep your workflow of instrumentation, for example, running as smoothly as possible, then when there is a surprise in theatre, you're much better prepared to be able to deal with that. And so as this is going on, this is your professional life. You mentioned earlier that you had a young child during this time. So how did that transition to motherhood go amongst this kind of responsibility and intensity? Yeah, it, was, um, it wasn't easy. <laughs> I, um, I didn't take an enormous amount of time off work. So I was back at work on a part-time basis when he was seven weeks old, um, really out of necessity. Back then, 16 years ago, you know, we didn't have the paid maternity leave options that there were now. And I was working in a sales role, which was very much based on commission. So I, I needed to work. You know, we needed the money. We had a mortgage and um, like everybody else, you've got those responsibilities. And also, you know, it was the type of business where you become so heavily invested in what you create. You know, you create your business as a salesperson within the medical device industry. It's very much a relationship business. Those strong relationships are all of a sudden someone else's responsibility. They're caretaking it on your behalf. And it's a very competitive industry, so it's really easy to lose that business and for competitors to see the opportunity while someone steps out. And, you know, there was an element of that too, of, of not wanting to lose all of that. To answer your original question, um, becoming a mother was really, I found it really difficult um, because what I tried to do, I guess, was fit motherhood into my pre-existing life professionally. 
and that didn't work very well. <laughs> I see you laughing. That didn't work very well. But equally, the job and the resourcing we had at the time didn't enable it to be the other way around either. So it was incredibly challenging and I had to have a lot of help, um, but it put a lot of pressure on my personal life. It was, it was beyond hard. <laughs> yes, and so many listeners can resonate with that feeling of life pre-having children or pre-certain responsibilities and then trying to find a new fit or a new normal as things change and also the intensity of relationships in our workplace. A lot of the listeners of the podcast are teachers and there is so much social capital in relationships that you work on year after year after year and it can feel quite consuming when you're in it and sometimes we almost overvalue the context and the environment in which we work and we forget about life outside of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, maternity leave itself is really interesting and I understand this more now because I've had a number of people from the old industry I used to work in reach out to me in similar situations. When you have um, built a business that way, which is built on relationships and you've got so much of that um, social capital as you were talking about, you know, it does become your identity. It becomes who you are. You're known as, you know, Peter from the organization I used to work with, for example. And I used to joke because my son thought my company name was my surname when I answered the phone, which isn't <laughs> so funny now I look back, but I do write about that in the book. But when all of a sudden you go on maternity leave and all of that ends, you know, it's a little bit like when you leave a job and you sit there thinking, who am I? All of a sudden I've had to let all of that go and letting go of that is difficult. And, you know, maternity leave I think can be quite confronting for a lot of professional um, people in that that's exactly what happens. And you can become quite overwhelmed. I found myself overwhelmed with, gosh, I should be looking forward to the birth of this baby and embracing motherhood and I don't feel like that. My brain is still thinking about what I'm missing out on back at work. It was quite conflicting. Like it was, it was a really interesting time. And when we're so used to being needed and when we're so used to the phone ringing, if the phone's not ringing, it can feel quite uncomfortable. I know for educators, school holidays, it takes them quite a while to settle into their nervous system and not feel like they have to race anywhere. There's no bells. There's no whistles. We can just stop. Absolutely, yeah, and I can relate to that so much um, when I stopped working in that particular job and ended that chapter and then all of a sudden it was what next you know it's a little bit like um, a newborn baby in a swaddle um, you know when you when you've got that around you that cocoon around you you feel safe it's what you know you feel secure you know your your structure your routine and when all of a sudden you take that swaddle away your arms and your legs are flailing around because you just can't get your feet on the ground it's like I've got all this space I'm not used to space and time and what do I do? And it takes a while to write yourself in that circumstance. People talk about rock bottom moments. Did you have one of those or was it a bit more subtle? I had a couple of those. <laughs> <laughs> there was rock bottom and there was really rock bottom. <laughs> it's really interesting you say that, Meg, because I think at the time and one of the things I've learned about burnout is very sneaky. It really creeps up on you and I didn't recognise the signs initially. Um, during that 13 years, we had our son, um, my husband at the time and I, and only a few years after that, we um, went our separate ways and I became a single mother. And a single mother 
working with that schedule and that responsibility, it was really, really challenging. And I didn't realize it at the time. I held on to it so tightly because the income was enabling in many ways. And I thought, how on earth am I ever going to earn this sort of money? I need to make this work for as long as I can. And I didn't think I had any other choice. I really didn't think I had any other choice. It was very black and white to me. This is what I do, which I've now learned is very different to this is who I am. You know, it wasn't just the physical exhaustion. I think what I didn't realize was I was slipping into a survival mode, a very structured way of living. I was um, retreating back from friends. I struggled connecting with people. And then there, there did become a time where all of a sudden I found myself starting to resent anything that would intrude on my mum time. So my son was with me half the time and when he wasn't with me, I was, I was an open book with work 24-7. When he was with me, however, more and more I found myself as he got older and as I got older, I, I wanted to be mum and I wanted to be there and it became really, really difficult to get a call on a Friday night at 8 o'clock saying I need to do a surgery at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning on a Saturday and I'd be up all night making sure the equipment got there and was sterilized and ready. But also all of a sudden I'd be on the phone trying to see, could I get a team member to cover a case, which meant I had to intrude on their personal time. Um, or could I get someone to look after my son or, you know, what I would originally say would be three hours, but if something went wrong in surgery, it could blow out to six. I couldn't predict that. So you felt like you were burdening people around you, not to mention what it was doing to him. That resentment built up and up and up and it started to get to a point in the last six months of the role, I remember I went to get myself, I started to play around with the phone in particular, how can I create some boundaries here and when you haven't had boundaries for 13 years to try to create them is really difficult but things like leaving the phone in a separate room, putting it on silent, um, thinking if it was in a separate room and someone really needed me they would ring, not just text. And then that worked to a point. And then I thought, no, I'm going to go and get a personal phone. I felt like I was cheating on my company <laughs> by doing that. But I did go and get a personal phone and started to try to separate life a little bit. And after doing that for a number of months, it just the juggle became really difficult, um, particularly with childcare. And there was a particular moment when my grandmother in Brisbane was unwell she had had a heart attack and I thought I, I need to go and be with her. And it was a weekday morning when I got a phone call. Nan was in Brisbane. That's where I'm originally from and I'm in Melbourne. And I remember getting halfway to the airport and thinking I'd left my work phone on the kitchen bench at home. And it was the first time in that many years, 13 and odd plus years, where I'd done that. And I just kept going. I didn't care. And when I came back from that trip to Brisbane and, and Nan um, lived through that particular episode of her health, ill health, I came back and I went to get into the car to drive to work the next day and I sat in the car and my hands were shaking, physically shaking behind the wheel and I going to be sick um, and sweating and tears streaming down my face and I thought, I can't do this anymore. I can't do it. My whole body had seized up. And then four days later, I handed in my resignation. I had no job to go to. Um, I'm a single mum with mortgages and financial commitments. And I just was that desperate. I had to stop. 
and I could not stop with the responsibility hanging over my head of needing to come back to it at some stage. I had to end it and that's what I did. Wow. And isn't it interesting that our body is constantly trying to tell us what's going on? Sometimes our mind takes a while to catch up because our mind's busy trying to normalize or rationalize and do all these things to keep us doing what we've always done. But your body gave you very clear signs at the end that this is not working. It is not worth it. Exactly. Not only was I exhausted, I was losing weight. My hair was falling out. My skin was terrible. Um, I was getting neuropathic pain in my um, forearms and my calves constantly. I'd had a number of acute panic attacks, a couple that had me in um, an emergency room um, because I thought I was having a heart attack and I wasn't. It was a full-blown acute panic attack. And I just kept going thinking that, you know, no, I've got to make this work. I've got to make this work. And, you know, the other side of all of this was is I had a 10-year-old son who desperately needed his mother and uh, needed me to be present because even when he was under the roof, I could feel myself, you know, if I was on a, a work call or something in the evening and he wanted my attention, I'd be prioritizing work and finding myself getting frustrated at him. Now, that's not the parent I wanted to be. I had to take a very hard look at myself to decide. And oh, I don't know, I mean, it sounds kind of, it sounds terrible, I guess, when I hear the words, but I had to prioritize there was a moment where I had to go, no, family over work. And for a long time, I got it the wrong way around or a way around that certainly didn't suit me and wasn't aligned with who my, what my personal values were. But I'd never really taken the time to understand my values to understand what was going on. So I can imagine you've handed in your resignation. What was it like after that? I'm guessing would it be that unwrap swaddle, a bit of free fall for a while? Like, what am I doing? Take us. What happens next? It was difficult. And look, it was difficult to um, extract myself out of the, the organization, you know, having so many lucrative relationships for them. That was really difficult. I didn't want to go back into the industry. I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. What I did find, and as a result, I had to close the chapter to really understand, I guess, the impact that I made on people while I was there for the right reason. And a lot of that feedback that I got after I left, it inspired a lot of ideas when I realized what I'd taught people, et cetera. And I thought, gosh, there's something in this. I can do something with this. And that's when I started dabbling with writing and creating content and understanding, reflecting back and trying to understand what is it that made me successful in that role and building strong connections with high-performing individuals like a neurosurgeon, for example. And that was the start of creating the content for um, my coaching framework and business and got it up and running. And as you know, as a, as a business owner, that's challenging in itself and brings with it new challenges. But I was so blind to the realities of it all because I was just loving that part of it that a lot of the practicalities I had ignored. And so I'd sort of gone from one chapter and thrown myself straight into another, which without taking an enormous amount of time to stop and reflect on what was really important to me and reflect on what's the best way of setting myself up for success moving forward. So I was still hemorrhaging energy, even though I did have a better balance and I was being a better mum. There were also some realities, particularly financial responsibilities, and I write about those in the book that I 
hoped I couldn't maintain, but the reality was that I wasn't maintaining them. And very soon what I thought was the rock bottom, there was a new rock bottom. <laughs> and it was at that particular point where, you know, I share it within, within the book and I don't mind sharing it with the listeners where I ran out of cash. I'd been juggling so many balls and I, it wasn't working. And I hadn't admitted that to myself. I wanted it to work so badly, but the reality is, you know, you can't ignore those. I'd done a pretty good job of trying to do that. <laughs> so that next rock bottom was when I was introduced to a psychologist, um, Dr. Joe Mitchell, who I believe you know Dr. Joe as well. And I write about Joe in the book a lot because she, you know, to this day, she does my mental fitness check-in on a monthly basis. We have our session and Joe made me down tools and sit on my hands and sit in my mess and wouldn't let me do anything for a good sort of four or five months there. And I learned that when you need help and you ask for help, there's help out there. It was a really big lesson during that time. And very slowly, we started to build me back together again, starting with the values piece, starting with understanding what they are, understanding what they feel like, how they can benefit me and act as a, a pilot light, really, to your own energy sources and to your entire life. How fortunate to land on Joe's couch. I can't think of a better couch to land on. Oh, God. I love Joe's couch. <laughs> <laughs> and so what else did you learn about yourself during this period of transition and rebuild? What was really important for me to learn was who I thought I was wasn't who I was. I'd created a life. I was existing in a certain type of life that was very high pressure, highly pressurized and I guess had adapted myself to suit that life as opposed to understanding who I was and creating a life to best suit me. And perhaps, you know, during that time with Jo, what I learned was she diagnosed me with anxiety and I had had anxiety my whole life and a lot of my previous behaviours were such to try to avoid anxiety. And for me what was quite revolutionary was understanding that I am not my anxiety, I am not my thoughts, they lie separate to me and I am my own person. And that for me was life-changing. Um, it wasn't, I can't do this because I'm an anxious person. It was, I'm having an anxious day today and I know tomorrow will be better. Or I know this is what I need to do to manage that and tomorrow will be better. I'm still the same person on the inside. Yes. And being able to create that distance. And I know through reading the book, you also gave your anxiety a name. Can you share what that process was like? Irene. Yes. <laughs> so one of the things that Joe said um, was, and I found this really, really helpful was through a lot of, we did a lot of meditation and through that, you know, that would always hone in on one particular thought, one particular anxious thought and then Joe suggested, you know, why don't we give them a name? What do they look like? So Irene was this sort of witch-like looking female character with wiry, wavy, black-grey hair, wearing a purple velvet coat, and she'd sit on my shoulder. And it really helped naming her. It also really helped, you know, when there's only two of you in the household, which is myself and my 10-year-old, um, you can't hide from going through a mental health journey. So we would talk about it. And interestingly enough, and I write about this in the book, you know, he was going through his own mental health journey. Um, he was quite anxious as a child. And to be able to say to him, you know, this is what anxiety feels like for me 
and to give her a name was really helpful. So I could say to him, oh, bud, Irene's visiting today. And he'd be like, oh, okay, mum. Or sometimes he would say to me, mum, is Irene there today? Get it together. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what also worked, and then moving on from that again was, you know, we ended up giving his anxiety a name, Boris. So we we now have Boris and Irene in the house. And fortunately, they've both been on a holiday for quite some time now and they don't come back that often, which is good. (laughs) I think that is so beautiful because you've got a language in your house to talk about really tricky things and it's not personalising as much. It's not thinking, oh, you're upset with me, it must be about me and you're upset with me, it must be about me and then creating more drama or stonewalling or withdrawing. You can laugh about it. It's just one of those days. It's an Irene day. Try again tomorrow. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, it's recognising that and understanding what to do. It's also, I think, one of the other revelations during that time that I had and that intense work I was doing with Joe was understanding the difference between exhaustion, anxiety, loneliness and stress, and they all have different antidotes. And now I can, I can really tell the difference within myself between each of those and know what I need to do to overcome them. Whereas in the past, everything used to be anxiety in my mind. Well, that's so beautiful to be able to have that understanding of the different feelings, different experiences, and then ways to move through them. So let's have a look at that. When you're feeling exhausted, what's that like and what helps you? Exhausted is that physical exhaustion. It's my my eyes are tired, my body is aching, and Funnily enough, though, I know I need to move. So when I'm exhausted, I need to move and do some sort of exercise, whether it's a gentle exercise. I do a lot of strength training, Pilates. I mean, I I do different types of exercise every day now um, or walking. But when I'm exhausted, I know I need to move. I know I need to eat well, sleep well, not drink alcohol, just do what I need to do to restore my physical body, if you like. So how about anxiety? What's that like for you? Anxiety is like an agitation for me. So it really, um, it'll be the tense body, the clenched jaw, really short fuse, feeling agitated, like knowing that no, I'm agitated or something, people are getting under my skin and something is bothering me and it shouldn't be bothering me when, you know, Irene is floating around, if you like. Um, so for me, that connecting back with self, it's mindfulness, it's presence, it's easing the distractions, it's quietness. For me, is quietness, connecting with nature. Um, for me, that all stills my mind um, and I find that quite helpful. And let's look at loneliness. I think that's a really important experience to explore so people have a bit of a framework to understand what it feels like and then also what some things we can do when we're feeling lonely. Yeah, so loneliness is an interesting one and I don't think I ever really defined that until probably the past couple of years, particularly, you know, being a single parent, I've been on my own for a long time and half of my time my son isn't with me and I don't fill the hours with work anymore because I tend to not open my laptop after 5.30 in the evening these days. I think, you know, I do spend quite a bit of time on my own and I enjoy my own company. I've learned there's a limit to how much alone time I can have, alone time being different to loneliness time. And when that happens, I know I need 
to connect with people. I need to work in a communal environment. And it's not necessarily even people. It might be connecting with, I'm an, I'm an avid reader, and that was one of the things I did to help tame my anxiety initially and help me refocus was reading. And connecting with a book is a way of connection. Um, connecting with a person, connecting with nature, knowing I need to plan something with people who are closest to me. So it all becomes about connection, a very different feeling. And taking that deliberate action to connect with things that light you up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and recognising that, you know, this does feel like loneliness and I need to make an effort to connect with people. I need to not isolate myself at the moment. So I think that's something I know that I do have a tendency to do that. I'm a bit of a hermit, particularly given I like love writing so much and, um, you know, you can spend or realise you can go days on end on your own, which you love, but you also go, oh, hang on, I need a dose of connection. <laughs> and that's that beautiful self-awareness that you've developed through this journey of what you need and when you need it and how you can give that to yourself or you can ask for help so others can support you with it. So looking back on your journey, if you could go back to the Peter that was juggling, that was trying to do it all, that was just trying to hang on, to keep it going, that it must work, what advice would you give her? Invest in yourself. You are replaceable and only you know what's right for you. I think the invest in yourself is a really, really important one and something that I didn't do, thinking that my job was who I was, my identity, very naively, I honestly think, Meg, I thought I'd be doing that for the rest of my life. I didn't think much beyond that. And I feel as though, like, once I understood that that wasn't the case, my whole world has opened up to lots of different opportunity now. And that's what I love about what I do now. And people say, what do you do? It's like, oh, my gosh, I do so many different things. (laughs) But the difference I make is around giving people self-belief that they can go out there and grow business. It's introducing them to a framework that's based for sales, that's based on self-connection and connecting with others. And it's delivered in lots of different formats. And I love that. So it's understanding that difference. But I, I come back to, there's a book called Defining You by psychologist Fiona Murden. And she's based in the UK and um, I connected with Fiona after reading it because it really resonated with me. And she talks about four core needs of the advanced brain and that is um, learning, connecting, giving and purpose. And I come back to that all the time now. You know, am I learning? Am I connecting? Am I giving? What is my purpose or my impact? And to me that's been a game changer. The way that it's described helps me understand how to use things like my values to my benefit. In the past, it was jargon I would hear about and I would really dismiss it, but that was because I didn't understand it well enough. That is so beautiful to think about as we grow, as we evolve, we're seeking new things to sustain us and also that beautiful reminder that we are all replaceable at work. Yeah, absolutely. We are all replaceable at work and it's so easy to get caught in the rat race and to become disconnected from yourself. And I think intentionally making that time to always maintain that connection with yourself is incredibly important. And if you don't know what that feels like, there are avenues to go out there to help you understand what that feels like because when you do, you'll realise what you've been missing out on. For sure. Thank you so much for sharing your lived experience. To wrap up this beautiful conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? 
I'll give it a go. <laughs> I am inspired by nature. When life feels hard, I love to create. An underrated skill is listening. And I am looking forward to life. Isn't that a beautiful place to end, to be excited about life and the discoveries that we can make along the way? Absolutely. And I, I can say that because I remember for a long period of time, I wasn't excited by life. It was a drudgery. And it's really great to think of all of the opportunities that are ahead. And all the opportunities that have come from your beautiful mess. Yes, plenty. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, thank you so much for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks, heaps, Meg. Thanks for having me. How amazing is Peter? I hope this conversation inspires you to take courageous and values-aligned action in your life. Peter's book, My Beautiful Mess, Living Through Burnout and Rediscovering Me, is now available online. To learn more about Peter's incredible work in the world, visit her website, mybeautifulmess.com.au. If you loved this episode, please share it with someone you think would benefit from hearing Peter's story and the lessons she has learned along the way. If you want to recharge, refresh and reprioritize your well-being this school holidays, join me for the five-day energy reset. Over five days, I will be sharing five game-changing strategies that have helped countless educators and school leaders to feel, function and relate better. To learn more, visit openmindeducation.com forward slash energy reset. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 52. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.